Hello and welcome back to Callum and David's Any Requests podcast. This is our Patreon requested podcast where you, the listener, can pay £5 a month and get us to do a podcast on absolutely anything you want. That's absolutely right. And this week we are back uh, with Sylvan's request. Yes. uh, Which was Moonlighting. And uh, we were going back and forth about which uh, kind of episode to choose. Yeah, um, he, he'd mentioned uh, he wanted us to look at, at season three quite quite yeah. broadly. So we had a look at some of the season three episodes that stood out to us. And uh, I think uh, both, both of course, as as we've mentioned in nearly every episode, are, are, uh, Callum and I are in the uh, theatrical world. There was one that uh, stood out. Uh, more than any of the others in season three that we had to do. Quite right. Um, And so it's no surprise then that this uh, episode, season three, episode seven's title is Atomic Shakespeare. (laughs) Yes. Um, Now, this is uh, uh, kind of a really good example of all the things people love about Moonlighting. Yeah, yeah. Um, In terms of its breaking of of the fourth wall. Yeah, the meta meta kind of uh, theatricality of it. Rapid fire dialogue which is yeah just, yeah um but it's all those things in a completely different setting than we're used to yeah um and i think that that is uh kind of quite astounding there's loads of stuff to talk about um but essentially um for those of you who haven't seen the episode uh it is a retelling of uh shakespeare's taming of the shrew yes uh over the course of just under an hour and um, and that's quite a feat in itself. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, yeah, so uh, for context, it's the seventh episode of the third season. Uh, I think uh, broadcast in November of 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it. it's kind of redundant for us to sort of do a blow-by-blow of the plot for this one because I imagine most people know the story of Taming of the Shrew because you'll have either seen that, you'll have seen Kiss Me Kate, you'll have seen 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know or the you, story. Or you'll have seen a television show uh, uh, about a couple or a, a, a man and a woman, yeah. um, you know, going at each other and trying to find ways in order to manipulate each other's behaviour only to be told that actually they need to get along in order to yeah. find peace and happiness. Which, of course, ironically, is the kind of plotline of the relationship between uh, Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis in Moonlighting. So yeah. it's also a really nice nod to we know where these tropes come from uh, and we're not hiding it. Um, yeah, but it opens, um, I think it is important to mention that it opens with a kind of another cold open. Yes. Um, where you have uh, it's almost shot like a bit like an infomercial from like the 60s or 70s where you've got the bottom half of a kid and you don't see their faces, but yeah. they're complaining. Um, and I think this happened a lot with like stock footage, and then they would voice over yeah. uh, the message of the, what they wanted. So it's why it was kind of used cheaply by companies who weren't kind of mega companies winning a- a- awards for adverts. Yes. They were kind of cheap, quick ways of getting your message across. Um, and you have this child saying to his mother, oh, I want to watch Moonlighting. And uh, his mother says, oh, that show about two detectives who argue all the time, but really want to, they want to sleep together. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah that yeah. one. Um, and she says, no, you can't because you've got to do your homework. Um, how is Moonlighting going to help you with your Shakespeare homework that you've got to do? Mm. He goes, oh, all right, then goes off. Um, and then, of course, we have Moonlighting, uh, episode seven of the third season, Atomic Shakespeare, which the child never gets to watch. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So it's 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 a nice um, it's it, it's a nice nod to the uh uh sort of uh, frequent trope that I believe runs through Moonlighting of of David the character of David having frequent daydreams and yeah. then so it's like it's not him it's actually this boy attempting to read Taming of the Shrew for his homework but obviously the whole thing is his daydream of imagining Taming yeah. of the Shrew but in the context of his favorite TV show um, yeah. But also within that opening segment, you know, there's so many, there's so much self-deprecation in there in terms of the mother's so disparaging about the show. And it's like, oh, is that you know, the one where those those people just need to sleep together? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that you know, that, you're not watching that garbage. It's, it's it's a really, uh yeah, a really nice poking fun at self-referentially. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that's something that Moonlighting do quite a lot, quite, you know, and very well. But it's a fine line with that stuff because if you poke fun at yourself too much, you risk alienating the audience for actually enjoying the programme. Yeah. 
so they get the balance just right, I think, um, in general with, with the episodes we've looked at, but I think including this one. Um, I, I think also one thing I want to talk quite a lot about in this episode is that it feels very influenced by Monty Python. Yeah. Um, and we've kind of mentioned it a few times when we've done comedy podcasts or we've talked about mm-hmm. particular kind of movies that like how much is just so influenced by Monty Python yeah. and uh, a mixture of kind of surreal sense of humour and the blending of worlds and yeah. you know, how to pastiche something lovingly yeah. without having to get it all exactly right. It's kind yeah, of yeah, really, yeah. it's a clever genre and it felt like quite Terry Gilliam-esque. Yeah. Right? At the yeah. beginning of um, Holy Grail where the book opens and you have yes. all the Shakespearean writing. Yeah. That's what we've got here. Yeah. And it places us in Padua in the 1500s. Um, and so we already know it being Padua that it's going to be, it's going to be turning into the shrew. Yeah. And you already know because it's Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis, like you know yeah. what those characters are. Um and that they fit in so well. Yeah. Um, initially, uh, uh, the writers, uh, Ron Osborne and Jeff Reno, wanted it to be Hamlet because they were like, that's mm. Shakespeare's detective story, isn't it? So, yeah. it would, you know, so yeah. that was... Who's done it? <laughs> yeah, that that was their original idea. But then, of course, when they realised how much the Kate and Patricio love story mirrors the, the David and, and Maddie love story, they said, yeah, it has to be this one. And then... I think it turned out quite fortuitously, like literally two weeks previously, uh, Glenn Gordon Caron had just seen Shakespeare in the Park with Meryl Streep and Raul Julia doing it. Oh, uh, right. was like, this, I love this play. Any, like, I've only, I think it was the first time he'd seen it and it wow. happened to be very recently as they pitched the idea. So he obviously went for it. Um, interestingly, uh, Ron Osborne and Jeff Reno talk a lot about the strength of the dialogue in Moonlighting. It will probably not surprise you to learn that they went on to be staff writers at the West Wing. Oh, well, yeah. there we are. Um, <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, we. I think actually when we first did our first podcast on Moonlighting uh, a few months ago now, we talked about the fact that you and I are both big lovers of quickfire dialogue yeah. um, and how fast that uh, yeah. Moonlighting is. Yeah, Aaron Sorkin, absolutely very, very similar in terms of his shows and the staff writers he worked mm-hmm. with. Uh, gonna have to be a yeah. fay with the style of that quick fire dialogue. Yeah. Um, um yeah, yeah, fantastic. And 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 at this point, this was the most expensive episode of television ever made on network TV in America. Really? Yeah, three and a half million dollars, <gasps> which would be something about seven million dollars today. Oh so, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. So they took a real big punt on it for the network. Three and a half million dollars for an episode. Yeah. I mean Yeah. Talking about West Wing, I remember uh them you know talking about how in the early noughties west wing was about a million pound an episode yeah. and that being big yeah. then I, th- I think the thing is because so much is done on the sound stages and with cgi now we forget the expense of when you had to build sets yeah. i mean the set in this episode is is Excellent. ridiculous it's completely uh, as they say in the uh in the uh, uh subtitles at the very beginning when it says padua 1549 or maybe a very good facsimile, and it, yeah. it is a very, it's an excellent facsimile. Um, uh, the level of detail of, of the set is is quite phenomenal. Um, I, but but what I think it does, I might touch on this later as well. But what I, I what I think it does so cleverly is the intertwining of verbatim text from the actual play uh, with the moonlighting esque dialogue yeah um still written in i have it pentameter hilariously but but it having that mixture the intertwining of the modern and the classic verse really highlights the comedy and the innuendo and the bawdiness of shakespeare um really well and actually apparently this episode uh for years after was used in american high schools to teach about shakespeare fantastic what a great legacy yeah but i could totally see why because you sometimes you know if you said you know had a young person who never seen shakespeare before or wasn't particularly interested and said what shakespeare and what's written today in 1986 yeah it would you'd be hard pushed in places because of it does as you say highlight the similarity highlight how funny some of that dialogue is and especially between kate and patricio it's constant 
puns and twisting of language. Yeah. It's Shakespeare at his most pedantic and wittiest best. Yeah. Uh, yeah, wittiest. Um, yeah, I absolutely love that. I actually wrote in a note, I, I can't believe how quick fire this is and still in iambic pentameter. Yeah. And then I kind of went, oh, well, to be honest, the type of actors that you're getting in Moonlight, I'm sure they all did Shakespeare rep at university. Yeah. And I was looking up, apparently, actually, not a single actor had done Shakespeare before, ever. Really? Apart from uh, Curtis... Uh, Curtis Armstrong. Who played Lucentio. Yeah. Um, apparently, he was the only actor to have actually performed Shakespeare before in real life. Do you know what? Incredible. I, I mean, they all do very well, but that doesn't necessarily surprise me, because he was very comfortable. Uh, yeah with the verse when he comes in um and and clearly understood the text but again immediately from the off you've got you've got the show poking fun at at the play because they make a point of how his character is just you know licentio is is absolutely there for exposition and yeah, nothing else in the actual play and they make a an point accessory. of that because he keeps trying to tell people what the plot is of this essentially uh of, of of what's about to happen and they just keep walking off various different <laughs> one excuses. line that i love where a uh, uh, kind of uh, supporting actor just turns around to licentio and says you've mistaken me sir for someone who cares yes <laughs> like, Paul Licentio, yeah Absolutely. It and really one point he says, it's not my fault that I've been lumbered with all the exposition, which is, <laughs> is true of that part. But yes, obviously, as I'm sure you will know, the crux of the story is uh, Lucentio and uh, Bianca are in love. They can't get married until Katerina, and Petru- until Katerina is married. Yeah. Uh, by decree of their father. Yeah. Um, and then Patricio turns up to woo katarina in exchange for money from because he's heard of the dowry is going to be heard of the dowry is going to be huge yeah yeah and uh and so patricio sets about uh wooing slash taming yeah uh katarina yeah. um yeah. patricio obviously played by bruce willis yeah katarina is who would is be great casting for a patricio oh in i just any kept thinking it it's like oh the i want to see the, the goatee was so like it was so perfect it really was so good and the kind of size and you know yeah. physicality he really changed a lot of his physicality yeah. both of them did actually which i found surprising because it's moonlighting so we, we're seeing david we're, yeah. seeing sybil Shepard, and bruce willis but but they both really played the characters there wasn't a nod to the fact that they run a detective uh no. agency there was no, no kind of it was just, oh, this is great fun. We're going to go and we're going to do an hour version, a hilarious version of this yeah, play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, what a great idea. But they really committed to it. And I thought both of them were were fantastic. Um, but yeah, so so he sets about uh, taming this shrewish yeah. nature of and, uh, Katerina. And, 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 and I would say especially um, um, impressed with the meeting scene because about 70% of that was literally yeah. just that scene it's from the play. It's word for word. Um, uh, because I, I, I know that scene very well because when I was at uh, uh, sixth form college, did a, I did a BTEC in performing arts uh, from 16 to 18 and uh, all of the boys were paired with girls and we all had to do that scene yeah. as part of a project. And uh, there's a, it always makes me laugh because um, uh, uh, another... Uh, another chap in our year he's still one of my best friends now matt he was uh paired uh uh with <laughs> with a with a girl in the class who, who i won't say her name but she just didn't bother learning it at all <laughs> and she literally halfway through the scene just shrugged and went and sat down in the audience <laughs> and just leaving poor matt on stage by himself who then managed to improv in iambic pentameter for about three or four minutes the the the, the crux of the storyline of that scene incredible uh, yeah one of the most amazing things i've ever seen uh, uh having yeah. worked with matt i would have loved to have seen <laughs> it was, that yeah. happen yeah yeah i yeah, also brilliant. worked on this scene uh as a student in the states yes um, of course yeah when we had a directing project um and so i i I worked with it with two American actors. Yeah. And so actually I just love hearing yeah. the Shakespearean you, verse you, in an American accent. Yeah, you did it as a minimalist. I did, theater, yeah. Which was um, really interesting. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Looking at a minimalist version and then a more traditional version. Yeah. Um yeah, it was it was very good fun. But I love I love Shakespeare in American accents. Yeah. Um yeah. and I think also a little bit of that is to do with um Return to the Bidden Planet, which which is a show that we both yeah. love. Again, sense of sense of humour, kind of poking fun, self referential, but also 
Shakespeare and American accents. It's just something that I don't see enough of. That's a, that's a, so I I hadn't even thought of that, but that's really really good connection. There is there is something really similar about the about how Planet uses, uses Shakespeare, Shakespeare and and is able to poke fun at it in a loving way, and also by doing that, you're introducing Shakespeare to new audiences. Like all of that stuff is is what this episode does as well. Actually, that's a really good point. Yeah, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it was a, a musical, uh, one of the first kind of jukebox musicals featuring loads of sixties and seventies songs, which interestingly this musical also does <laughs> uh, feature two sixties uh, hits. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, it won an Olivier Award in, in the 90s. And I was lucky enough to work with a director, Bob Carlton, who sadly is no longer with us. But I think uh, he is responsible for introducing a lot of people to not only musical theatre, theatre in general, but hugely Shakespeare. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So the other thing I just kind of want to talk about a little bit is because you have this storyline of uh, Patricio wanting to tame Katerina in order to get money from Katerina's father you have huge amounts of sexism within the play. Yeah. But when people refer to it as a sexist play, I'm never really sure where I sit. Um, and therefore, when I talk about this episode and Moonlighting as a series, I say, well, it's dealing with sexism in a really smart way. Because mm. it's acknowledging that it's very, very prevalent. And the patriarchal world that Sybil Shepherd's character is constantly raining against. And Bruce Willis is trying to find that line of, well, getting on with my fellow, you know, my colleague and my and my uh, friend but also at the same time having to answer to the patriarchy as well yeah i felt that was really well explored in this episode is yeah. that because moonlighting does that really well or is that also pr- present in the shakespeare play i don't know what you think i i i i think moonlighting do a lot to fix shrew in, yeah. in this and it's very clear but because you see in productions now of shrew the the, the best you can do really is is how you play kate's final monologue yeah that because on on paper it's a woman who is talking about how wonderful it is that she's now subservient and that she's been tamed and isn't that great so if you play it with irony then then you can open up a conversation about that but you know we're talking about something that was written in the 16th century it probably wasn't intended that way yeah you know i I um, agree um uh, but I and think... that monologue is horrendous. Yeah, like yeah, this the and it, but also if you play it broken as well, yeah, what how are you going to leave an audience? So it's interesting that it's it's a brilliant play in terms of the content within it, but the overarching message is just horrendous, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, but also the relationship between Katerina Patrico Patricio, I I, th- I don't think feels as toxic in the text necessarily. But when you put it in the context of the world they're in, yeah. it's that again, it's that constant reminder. Yeah. Um, and a reminder of how also things aren't that different today, sadly. Um, people are still being, women are still being auctioned off, as Katarina says, uh, for, for being married. Um, and politically, you know, marriages are arranged and um, kind of dealt with all over the world. But also, I think what it does do is highlight how david's character who obviously is petruchio yeah is feels like he's pressured to be this way like his manhood and his role in society he's going to be outcast if he doesn't play this other hand yeah um you know he turns around to who sent her and katarina's father baptista and says you know oh actually um you know don't worry i've got a totally under control when we've seen actually yeah that they've kind of fallen for each other and uh he said he says no that can't be true and he says hey if I'm lying, I'm dying. And you just kind <laughs> yeah. of go, it's that macho yeah. moment. And it takes us, obviously, with contemporary language, it just reminds us that this is still going on. Mm-hmm. That people still, you know, play one things within the, the privacy of their own home and then also perpetuate uh, patriarchal norms outside of the home. Yeah. And, you know, talk to, talk about women in a pretty derogatory way. It's that whole idea of being whipped. Yeah. Um, I think I think something that this episode does really well as well is is highlight something that I think is a really interesting f- an interesting facet of the play that I don't think ever really gets explored enough is that Petruchio's a lot of Petruchio's character I think comes from the fact that he is an outsider that he is a man of Verona that's in Padua and I mm. and and there's something about his behavior even in the original Shrew 
that 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 he's out of step with with this town that he's come into and yeah. and i think they do that really really well in moonlighting and it's often forgotten a lot in that play that, that a lot of the reasons a lot of his behavior is based upon the fact that he is an outsider in this town and i and i and i thought they do that in the episode really nicely um from the fact that you know willis is the only one that's wearing vaguely mo- like i think he's got black leather trousers on at one point <laughs> yeah i mean like like he is very much uh an, uh wearing anachronistic clothing for for a lot of this and they don't really do that with anyone else and so mm-hmm. he all Petruchio always feels different and feels like he's from a different place in the in the episode especially like when he comes in at the wedding uh, yeah, on a horse looks like a rock star in the 80s he's got sunglasses. sunglasses yeah sunglasses on the horse as well oh brilliant brilliant touch full brilliant of little touch. details like that yeah um and yeah he he, he kind of uh, talks about when they're playing music as well which we'll talk about later you know he says oh i i like if the oldest one's the best yeah 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 i don't know what that says about verona in shakespeare's universe as being somewhat i don't know i don't know no. um but yeah he, he so he goes to baptista uh but it's baptista isn't it yeah yeah um and he says presents him with a contract and there's just a gag that i really baptista. love Batista is what I'm thinking of. That's why I had to check that it's Batista. No, he goes, not to, Batista. he goes to professional wrestler and actor Batista, Dave Batista. Well, yeah, I mean that wouldn't be that Batista. weird, would it? In this kind of Monty Python inspired surrealist moonlighting episode. Um, but yeah, he goes to goes to Dane Batista, Dave Batista, and he says, "I've got this contract, so if I do uh, kind of manage to marry your wife and tame her, then I want all this money." Um, and originally he gets out the wrong scroll mm. and it's just a very kind of almost quite an old-fashioned gag of getting the wrong paper read this note no not that note this one yeah, you yeah, know yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a very kind of gratuitous little gag that keeps an audience light and on their toes when information's being carried out um and you get that a lot in shakespeare not quite that uh obvious um but then uh, it, I, I just loved it he he reads out oh okay so these are your demands um, my own Winnebago, a chance to direct. And they go, oh, no, 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 that's the wrong one. And you yeah. kind of know that that's clearly a oh, nod to... That's a great bit, yeah. Uh, to to his Bruce rider. Willis, his yeah. rider. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is probably him, you know, joining the negotiating series four, I yeah. should imagine, but is what I'm, they're discussing. I mean, it's it's so meta anyway, but in this, when you have layers of Bruce Willis is playing David Addison is playing Petruchio from Taming of the Tree. Like it's there's there's yeah. three levels of of meta that you get in that, which they just play with brilliantly, so much throughout the episode. I also just think there's there was another bit of Monty Python uh, moment where for no apparent reason, um, the bell ringer for the wedding is Quasimodo. Is Quasimodo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he <laughs> rings the bell once and then goes up into the belfry and never comes down again i'm like is terry gilliam coming in coming to direct this this one segment yeah and then gone gone away again because i because at first i was like oh are they just saying that all because obviously we're not in notre dame yeah because we're in italy uh and i was like oh are they just saying all bell ringers are hunchbacks but then when he goes up, you hear him going, Sanctuary, Sanctuary, which is the Hunchback yeah. of Notre Dame. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, no, yeah, it is. It, you're, you're making it very clear. That is the actual Hunchback of Notre Dame who's in Padua for some reason, okay? Bringing some bells. Um, but no, I mean, for me, my the for me, the funniest bit of the whole episode was the, was the completely weird Shining reference. Oh, I couldn't yeah. stop laughing. I've forgotten. See, after he's done that contract signing with Baptista, yeah. he goes upstairs to Kate's bedroom. Yeah, goes upstairs to Kate's bedroom. She's locked the door. She won't let him in. So uh, he's trying, he's trying, and eventually he finds uh, an, an axe on uh, the wall, and it's behind a, a break glass thing. And the sign says, <laughs> "In case of shrew, break glass." <laughs> and so he does, and he gets the axe out, and it's and then it's 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 frame for frame for a few seconds, exactly the shining, yeah. the same size hole, and he puts his <laughs> through the through the hole in the door and says. Here's Patricio. (laughs) I just love it. Yeah, Yeah, very, very much that Python-esque, that airplane-style spoof humour, which is just so odd uh, to put in with everything else that's going on with the style of this episode to shoehorn those weird gags in as well. It's just brilliant. I love it. But yeah, and it doesn't feel shoehorned in. It feels no. like we can do this and then we'll bring you back straight away. Yeah. And now we're going to have this and now we're back into it. Yeah. 
and you and and the actors are really clear about when they're playing uh comedy and when they're playing truth in terms of when the scenes are and i think that's because they play all their comedy as truth yeah um and it goes back to something that we say a lot on this podcast when you look at what makes great comedy um you can talk about with big train last week yeah you know yeah are you playing the truth of it then you're probably doing something right as an actor yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um and it you know it does it comes up time and time again um, also, actually, I think a great example of that is uh, Kenneth McMillan, who plays Baptista. Yeah. Um, he is absolutely not in uh, a comedy episode of anything. No, no, He's no, no, no. Playing He's it playing it straight. straight. He is here. I'm, I'm, surpr- I'm, I'm sure he must have ex- experience. Well, because he feels like a classical American actor, doesn't I, he? I, he absolutely feels like he is. Um, I have to look him up. I know that he came into acting later in life. Right. Um, and I also uh, was saddened to hear that he died in 87. So uh, this really? probably year was his last, last role, yeah. Last ever uh, part um, of a heart attack. Um, but he is, yeah, brilliant and feels like a very much a classical Shakespeare yeah. actor, as you say. Has a great weight and balance, but knows exactly his role and does it brilliantly. Yeah. He's not worried about trying to get gangs off anyone. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. also an actor we didn't expect to see in this. Yeah, Colmini's in it. <laughs> and I think he has like one line to cat and then. She- at the, beginning. She, at the beginning, and then she pushes him in a fountain, and then he's just at the very end at the wedding scene uh, of uh, Bianca Lucentio. He's just there in the background. He literally has like, one line. Yeah, but but um, uh, for those who don't know, Colm Meany, you'll know him best from Star Trek. He's the engineer uh, in Star Trek: The uh, Next Generation, and yeah. I think in Deep Space Nine as well. Um, and he's also a gangster in a film that I can't think of right now. Um, he's. I know exactly the one you mean. Yeah. He's he's done quite a few movies. Um, I also he did. Um, he played Big Daddy alongside uh, our mm. friend Lisa Palfrey. Yeah, in uh, in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof in the West End. Um, was by all accounts very good. Um, yeah, but an Irish actor who yeah. broke into Hollywood quite early on in his career. Yeah. Um, and now he's kind of doing lots of British drama and British comedy and and yeah, plenty of British gangster films. Yeah, but yeah. There's, there's one because I remember. Which reminds think- me a lot of Brendan, Brendan Gleeson. Yes, yeah, but because um, because I remember thinking um, when I saw him in the film, I'm trying to think of. Uh, I'd only ever seen him, I think, really in in Star Trek, um, playing a kind of yeah a, a very different character to um, to to any kind of uh, uh, layer cake. Ah, there we are. Yeah, it's layer, layer cake. cake. He's in layer cake. Yeah. Yeah, so in a pub quiz, if you hadn't told me, I would have said Lair Cake, which Irish actor starred in Lair Cake, I would have said Brandon Gleeson. And I would have been wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm really sorry, Cole Meany. Uh He's a great actor, though. Great yeah. actor. Um, really interesting face. Just interesting day player in this. He literally has mm. one line. Yeah. Uh, yeah, complete supporting artist. Um, and then, mid, like, midway through the episode, suddenly there's a narrator. Yeah. And he wasn't there at the beginning. He wasn't. I was. No, no I thought, oh, he must have been in there at the beginning and I um, forgot about no, it. I'm no, no, no. I that. don't remember. I no. mean, unless we both forgot, but I'm pretty sure he com- He turns up during the sort of montage bit of, of their life together yeah. after they've been married. Um, And it's the voice of Winnie the Pooh. It is the wonderful um, Sterling Holloway. Yeah. Um, who was the original voice of Winnie the, Winnie the Pooh film. Uh, yeah, back in God, I, when was Winnie the Pooh? Was it sixties? Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, maybe the first animated. Yeah. Um, and I and then, but also, I was thinking, I didn't recognise him as Winnie the Pooh. Right. When I went, I first went, oh, who do I know that voice? And I looked it up. Yeah. Um, and I saw he played Winnie the Pooh, but I the voice I was hearing was um, Car the Snake in uh, of Jungle course. Book. Yes, yes, Which yes. Which, if you think yeah. about it, is just Winnie the Pooh with a sibilant s yeah um, of course but it's really interesting once you work it out yeah. you can't unhear it yeah. because it's and isn't he also the snake in robin hood because uh, i think he might well be i remember thinking same. that car would i remember being confused about that as a kid and i was like why is this how did car get from the jungle to medieval england because well, it's the same design. It's the same snake. design of snake, but yeah. um, but I don't think it's meant to be the same snake. But I, but yeah, I I'll agree. I'll have a look for you and I'll see what we come up with. But um, what a great voice and what an incredible, yeah. um, kind of oddly famous person to be 
but it, it, doing it a took bit of me a while but i knew it so distinctively and and suddenly i realized i was thinking about i was trying to picture the guy and yeah. then once i stopped doing that and i pictured winnie the pooh I'm sorry, that's exactly that voice he is but, winnie the pooh but very odd that he does come in so late into the again it's just it feels like they're being deliberately subversive like yeah. and now we're gonna have a narrator and it feels kind of un- unnecessary know, yeah. um and i think it is but then also if i found out that stanley hollyway was up, up for doing uh up for doing it then i'd be I, i'd write him uh, whatever part he wanted yeah however unnecessary absolutely um so i'll find out that for you with regards to to whether he was in robin hood as well um the other thing I, I thought was kind of something that should be out of place but really isn't was the musical sequence. <laughs> I felt that was that was completely gratuitous as well, but in a really, really good, lovely way. And also, I felt like it was a deliberate, this is what Shakespeare would do. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, because I... he, every time Shakespeare gets bored, he puts in a song and a dance, which you often don't see nowadays. No. But you, I mean, you do get it. If you go to the Globe in London, yeah, they always open, end, and segue uh, at each act actually with a song and a dance. I mean, I mean, Twelfth Night has more songs in it, I would say, than Aspects of Love, which is an actual musical. You're and probably Aspects right. Aspects of actually, Love yeah. has "Love Changes Everything" in it about eighteen thousand times. And I think like two other songs that Lloyd Webber could be bothered to write. <laughs> I mean, that's um, the thing, isn't it? It's just reprise. It's just reprise. It's just reprise about uh, love changes everything. Whereas Twelfth Night, there's there's legitimately about seven or eight songs in that, different songs that Shakespeare wrote into the script, yeah. into the play. So, yeah, I think it might be a nod to that. I was also wondering if it if it is a nod to things like Kiss Me, Kate, to to the idea of. The, the only way we can engage today's audiences with Shakespeare is if we turn it into a musical. Yeah. And I didn't, I wondered if there was a nod of, of, of that as well. Um, That's because, quite interesting. Yeah, there's, no, there's no need for it. And there's no other time in the episode where, where there's a musical sequence where one of the actors sings. And so it's just, yeah. And, but it's also, I just think Bruce Willis must either really enjoy it or really hate it because somewhere along the line, the producers and the directors are, making, are going, yeah, you're going to have a whole music video yeah. to do. Um, and record the song, but it's a song "Good Loving," um, yeah. written by uh, Rudy Clark um, and uh, Arthur Resnick. Yeah, performed by a band called the Rascals, who I think were originally called the Young Rascals and then just became the Rascals. Oh, they the were Young in the Rascals 60s. rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, mid sixties band uh, in America. Um, uh, they were in the sort of genre. I think it was called like the Blue Eyed Soul or something like that genre. Um, uh, and yeah, just kind of yeah, quite quite a hit kind of uh uh mid 60s band yeah it's but, um, um it's a good little track good fun yeah um a nice nicely breaks up the scene i found the answer for you by mm. the way um those of you who are, are on tenterhooks uh it was actually T- terry thomas who played sir hiss oh, in robin hood was it? Terry but thomas. He, he went for a very similar kind of yeah. um voice and also, the snake is identical, pretty yeah. much, in terms Terry of the actual Tom- design. Terry Thomas, great uh, uh, comedic actor, very distinctive moustache. Mm. Uh, yeah. Was he British? Him. Yes. I think he was British, yes. yeah. yeah. Um, actually, a lot of Robin Hood's British, I think, mm. because Sir John, Prince John, is um, uh, played by uh, Eustonoff, Peter Eustonoff. Yes, Peter, Peter Eustonoff. Um, yes. Peter Universe. Peter Universe, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Uh, apart from kind of taking you through the rest of these, you should probably take you through the rest of it. So, uh, essentially, over this kind of montage, when this uh, narration comes in, we learn that they get on with each other mm. and they're having a really nice time and they're also coming together in a way that we don't see in Moonlighting. So it's quite satisfying for kind of us as audience members of Moonlighting to see... Sybil Shepherd and Bruce Willis finally get together and have a little post-coital bed scene. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Lovely. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, post-coital, you know, in the morning um, after they've uh, consummated their marriage finally. Um, it's, something, it's something quite satisfying about us seeing just, oh, for goodness sake, just do it. Yeah. Um, uh, and, then, uh, and then they're reminded of the deal. So actually, Petruchio has learned from Katerina. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then because of this deal and having to prove that he's tamed her which of course is now no longer his objective yeah 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 yeah, yeah. they go back for the wedding of lucentio and um uh, but, but what's the name of katarina's sister 
Bianca. One, Bianca. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they're on display again. And they've got to kind of, yeah, impress this. Um, and they go back to the sun and the moon, which is exactly yeah. the first row that Petruchio and Katarina have about him trying to get her to say that the sun is the moon and the moon is the sun. Yeah. Um, and then has this amazing speech that would be lovely if that was in Homie yes. of the Shrew. Yeah. yeah. Like you say, this I think it fixes the problem. doing bits there. to try and fix things. Yeah. Um, uh, where he explains that this is absolute nonsense. Yeah. Um, and there's this lovely line where he says kind of explains that you know sexism is wrong and you should actually learn a lot from your women and they're you know brilliant he said and and if this offends men well perhaps the time has come to be offended yeah and i thought that's a really good line Mm. and i've googled it to find out where whether it's like a quote of something Mm. or whether it's from a shakespeare it's not it's just this episode of moonlighting where i'm like perhaps the time has come for you know offense to offense to arrive or whatever yeah. it was exactly it's just brilliant um brilliant line it's like yes i think it is if you're offended then maybe you just be offended yeah because that's we can't prioritize your feelings anymore you yeah. fragile men yeah um and it was just such just something really progressive about that in 1986 yeah. great great to be having that why are we still having this discussion all the time today absolutely um yeah and and i I just as well an, an, another thing that I loved was uh, uh, at the beginning uh, uh, Bruce Willis uh, when he first arrives just keeps quoting the wrong Shakespeare play for ages <laughs> and then he gets his script out and reads it yeah brilliant um, yeah, a nice acknowledgement that you know this isn't this isn't the home of high art yeah but actually ironically it probably it is kind of it's like it's where you it's high quality soap opera in, in moonlighting yeah. in that sense yeah. um uh yeah just another note on this when i said the word quality we've talked about the fact that it's an ambient pentameter and the fast-paced dialogue and mm-hmm. the delivery and the acting is, is all technically very very good uh and it is but i just want to talk about something that moonlighting do quite often which is the cross-cutting yeah um of both the characters and they have this amazing bit where they're arguing and they cross-cut in in iambic pentameter and it's almost an exact <laughs> copy yes of the row they have when they both storm off to different um mm-hmm. uh different parts i think he goes back to the office and she stays at home yeah yeah um and then and then they acknowledge it with bruce willis opens the door and says me thinks this reminds me of something yeah uh, and then close it yeah and i'm like you're just proving that you can do it as well as if it wasn't an iambic pentameter yeah. And like that's not easy to do. Like you must no. have you've had to spend time rehearsing this. Yeah. And you just don't get that in TV land anymore. Um I wish you did because then we'd have more wonderful moments of film and you know yeah. and and TV like that. But, um it's just lovely the cross-cutting in Hamlet Pentameter within the story of Shakespeare and also furthering on the relationship and speaking to the current relationship of your two main characters of a sit- sitcom drama dramedy yeah that is now in its third season halfway through its third season that's just a whole load of accomplishments there that are yeah. really big yeah um yeah and i just i just i mean this is a uh a uh compliment of it as a as a whole series uh wider than this episode but i just love how brave they were at doing this kind of thing and 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 fair play to the network for letting them but but mm. you know obviously glenn gordon Caron and, and the other writers that we mentioned and the people involved in this uh and the director um you know really not worrying about audience retention rates or yeah. or how many people are tuning in or things like that in fact i think this did really badly for viewers uh, I should imagine I it might well yeah, have done. I, I, I think uh, it, it didn't, uh, um, uh, yeah, get get the audience it wanted, really, comparative to the three and a half million that was spent on it. Um, but it was nominated for a load of Emmys, this episode. I think the costume, right. design, all that stuff. And I think the director of the episode and the two writers, I mean, you know, I think they were all nominated for, so. um, for Emmys as well for this. Because, yeah, it is. It is it's, a, it's a really impressive um piece of 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 television making um and i think yeah there's um speaking of music as well there's again lovely cheeky little nods of contemporary songs done in using medieval instruments and medieval style music like why do birds suddenly appear yeah there's uh, a uh, close, uh, to you. close to you yeah um yeah a lovely yeah a lovely moment done on a lute and a fife and a, yeah you know um 
and and, and green sleeves kind of coming in and out of it as yeah. well and it kind of being and, a nod and to that. you actually get the actual uh, the Algero theme tune as well. Yeah, in, ha- uh, done in, in the in, style done of, in a medieval, yeah. Yeah, sixteenth century or seventeenth century um um yeah, cl- kind of classical folk music. Yeah. yeah. It's really, really lovely. I always uh, you know, saying credit to the producer for doing this, I always forget the producer's name because his name is Roger Director. Yes. And so I, yeah. I'm always like, stop yeah. doing that because yeah, 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 now yeah. You, I think the, I think the, the director. director. Yeah. But it, no, the, the, the producer Roger Director. The director's uh, Jonathan producer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, just to be uh, just to be annoying. Yeah, and then we kind of end the episode um, with uh, uh, and everyone saying the line together, which yes. is a rule, very specific British pantomime rule. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but well, they do from. it as well early on when he's getting the lines wrong because people keep yeah. saying wrong yeah. play, wrong play, and then eventually uh, it says French Roman's countryman, and, and the whole oh. village stops, turns at him, and all in unison says wrong, wrong play. play. But they do it at the end. They say one thing we've learned is all those important things about sexism that we've learned. But also we've learned, and everyone says in unison, we hate iambic pentameter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the last line of the episode. And I thought, are you, you're kind of saying like, thank goodness we don't have to do this anymore because you can't get lines wrong because yeah. it, you know, it messes with the meter. Uh, but also, is it a way of thanking the audience for sticking with it? Um, yeah. So I, I suppose if you watch a lot of Shakespeare, it's not really, it's not, it's no hardship. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe some people who you know have an aversion to Shakespeare, and ha- you know, often that comes from being badly taught at school, yeah. and you know, people kind of just getting it all wrong, and um, and and the way it's kind of been just immortalized as something that's perfect rather than something that was influential and needs to be acknowledged you don't have to love yeah. it to understand it i, I think that I, I get annoyed at the way yeah. uh, shakespeare's taught at schools um also, but it felt like it was yeah. a nod to that and thanking those who might not love shakespeare also for engaging yeah. in the episode uh uh yeah um just if you don't know uh iambic pentameter is the the sort of rhythm of how shakespeare structured uh a lot of his work not all of it because there's a lot of prose that is yeah straight pro you know not not blank verse as we call uh, the stuff written in iambic, iambic pentameter, which is dum de dum de dum de dum de dum. Yeah. So it's it's yeah, and it's it's to do with your your stressing the first part of uh, the first syllable, the two syllable thing, and it's in, in grouped into uh, five. Um, um, hence pentameter. Five. Well, five couplets. Five cups. So yeah. It five. Would be ten syllables. Ten syllables. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, and then uh, again, I'm not good enough uh, on my Shakespeare to kind of write all the difference, but you learn about there are each verse is split into trochees and iams yeah. and yeah. they all have different kind of and then they're reverse trochees where you can break the rules yeah. and, and stressing the second syllable rather than the first and there's a real kind of art to doing it so when we're, when we're saying that they're, they're, they're great at this yeah uh, I mean they're really good at it they're really really good yeah, um, yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't know if it's still available on BBC iPlayer but if you can somewhere get hold of the uh film version of uh uh king charles the third that's an an amazing example of uh the playwright mark there's a play originally by mike butler and his uh uh ability to craft contemporary iambic pentameter is is stunning and and it that in itself as well makes you go back and appreciate shakespeare more and actually understand shakespeare more as well because if you can attune your ear to the rhythm of contemporary speech doing it in that rhythm you can then go back and and i feel like it's easier to attune to uh shakespearean language but i i also think you know i uh directed production of macbeth about five years ago and my big thing for that similarly to what your uh uh, uh ambition was with the uh the true scene you true, did. yeah is about i think a lot of the reason why people turn off at shakespeare or or yeah uh, are scared by it or feel alienated by it or don't think it speaks to them is actually all the other stuff that surrounds it i don't mm. think it's about the text i think it's because you imagine you know the costumes that they wear in this episode yeah. and all that kind of you know you imagine all this pomp and circumstance around the play and so that's why when you know when I did Macbeth, everyone was dressed in grey, you know, very basic clothes, it very very minimal set, and it was tr- I was trying to force the audience 
to just pay attention to the text and a lot of the feedback that we got both in reviews and also audience members was people saying it was the most they'd ever understood shakespeare yeah and so I, I i think that's the point is actually Take we are going we're going about it the wrong way when we're trying to teach it and i get as angry as you do about how shakespeare's taught in schools and actually it's just about listening and understanding to the text and and again going back to my earlier point this is what this episode does by intertwining gags intertwining modern day dialogue in an iambic pentameter rhythm with actual original text and i do go back to that scene where they meet as a really good example because you can barely see the joins uh uh aside deliberate gags where they're using obviously anachronistic dialogue it's it's very hard to see the joins between the shakespeare and you know the the uh uh ron osborne and and jeff reno writing I, I completely agree, and I think your um, production of Macbeth is a very good example of something of when you do take away all that um, the the kind of the other barriers and the distractions and the things that remind you that this is inaccessible or inaccessible, should I say? Um, you, you are left with a, a story that's quite universal. But also talking about Arabic pentameter, um, many linguists have said that often when human beings construct sentences, most of our sentences are in eight, ten, or twelve syllables. <laughs> yeah. So. Having having ten syllable iambic pentameter is actually very natural to English people, and they yeah. reckon that's why Shakespeare wrote in that Makes uh, meter yeah. in the first place. Yeah. So it's been you know reminding ourselves that it's not actually different uh, as different as we think um, is important, but also uh, nevertheless learning lines to be syllabically accurate yeah. uh, is still a, is still a feat in itself. Yeah. Um, and I think also with your production of Macbeth having an incredible cast uh, mm. including uh, Andrew Fenning who's a, um, become a friend of ours a fantastic uh, guy when it comes yeah. to Shakespearean yeah. text so either see Andrew Fenning in a show uh, well you can't at the moment um, or yeah watch uh, as you say watch Charles III a modern yeah. contemporary um, bit of writing that happens to be an Arabic pentameter um, great way of again removing those barriers yeah um, or, or watch this episode of Moonlighting or of course, just watch this. Actually, if you're listening to this, just yeah. watch the episode of Moonlighting. It'll yeah, be really I think, good yeah. start. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. really good. Uh, it's available on YouTube. Um, so it's yeah, nice and yeah. easy to find. Um, I don't really have a great deal more to say about no. it. Um, without no, just it's... repeating many things that I would say have said about the, the previous two episodes of Moonlighting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great series. I it can't is, believe yeah. I've never seen it before. Sylvan requested it, so just yeah. a massive thank you for properly introducing me to this series absolutely yes thank you sylvan um i mean as yeah as i said in the first one we did i i i know i used to watch it as a teenager but i just have no i have no memory and 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 uh of of that um but i just know i sat down and watched and i'm, and I'm aware of the characters and the relationship and mm. i know what's going on vaguely but i couldn't tell you a specific episode i saw um but again, I probably at, at sort of whatever I would have been, 14, 15, a, a lot of the meta stuff I wouldn't have probably got at that time and things like that. I wouldn't have realised. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. I probably wouldn't have un quite understood how how many layers there are with Moonlighting and, and how innovative it is. Yeah, um, and also you don't realise how much kind of, how good quality something is until yeah. you realise that, a lot of there's a lot yeah. of crap out there yeah <laughs> as well um sorry we should just say as well that the end of the episode um uh the boy from the very beginning of course goes back downstairs uh because he hopes he can catch the end of the episode and he comes down his mum says sorry it's already finished don't worry it wasn't a very good one obviously commenting on the episode we've just seen yeah. so it, yeah um again they obviously knew that not a lot of people would probably tune in and watch it and they were all yeah. there already preempting that but they've decided to give the green light for three and a half million quid anyway. And yeah. that's, that's good producing in my in my book. Yeah. Well done, yeah. Roger Director. <laughs> <laughs> Marvellous. So yeah, there there we go. Uh, a little bit of a shorter episode for you uh, today. But yeah, as we say, there's not really much more to say other than just what a fantastic series. What a great episode. What a great way to introduce young people to Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, and just, what great performances. Yeah, and what great performances. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, you can... So we say, yeah, just search it on YouTube. It's all on there now. Um, and uh, and yet, yeah, do... Um, uh, let us know what you think. Let us know what you think. Again, we are... Now that we're doing two of these a week, we are rapidly catching up. So um, we welcome any more requests from any of you guys out there. If you do have the money to spend a fiver a month, 
um, you know, you get one of these uh, a month for you on literally anything you want. We've got, uh, uh, I believe, on uh, Thursday, we're going to be looking at uh, two films, uh, uh, one of which is Gross Point Blank, which I just love uh, and haven't seen for years. And I've never seen it, with John but Cusack. I love John Cusack, so yeah. I'm really looking forward and, to uh, it. And Mini Driver, I think. Um, uh, yeah, great, great film. Good actor, um, Mini Driver. Uh, and uh, we've been asked uh, by my sister to compare it to um, another film, which I think if I remember right in saying it's called uh, Mr. Right, which is a Sam Rockwell film from a few years ago, um, which is a similar kind of playful hitman comedy. Um, Again, never so, seen a bad Sam Rockwell performance no. or a bad Sam Rockwell movie, actually. So. No, he's just excellent. He's excellent in everything. Um, so, yeah, so that will be on Thursday. So we're looking forward to that kind of comparing and contrasting those two movies. Um, and we've got some other really exciting stuff coming up in the future as well. We're going to be looking at uh, the Chinese film Infernal Affairs, which, yes. of course, The Departed was based on. We're going to be looking at um, uh, the, the history of um, kind of anti-cannabis propaganda in america mm. um specifically looking at william randolph hearst and some other things like that so those of you that liked our secret 60s one that's going to be more in that vein a kind of little bit of a historical uh uh, uh conversation be nice um, to have a bit of a yeah a kind of american history lesson again for us we always have to end up reading several books for these ones <laughs> absolutely uh, which i lament and then i'm so grateful for afterwards yeah absolutely so yeah loads of really uh uh interesting different things coming up in the next few weeks in the meantime you can get in touch with us uh on twitter at macabre podcaster you can find us on facebook podcaster macabre uh, uh fb.me forward slash podcaster macabre uh you can find us on gmail podcaster macabre at gmail.com and of course you can like share subscribe and listen to this podcast to all the old jonathan creek podcasts all of that good stuff on itunes spotify google play anchor wherever you get your podcasts from We'll be back again on Thursday, as David says. In the meantime, I've been Callum Hughes. I've been David Shopland. Thanks for listening. Cheers, guys. Bye. I said, Dr. Dr.